I used to think that our self-image and our self-talk about black boys and black men was similar to like looking at a cracked mirror, right? So what is seen is seen, but it's distorted. Mm -hmm. But like the older I get, bro, it's not a broken mirror where our image is distorted. Bro, it's a broken heart. Welcome back, everyone. The Stuck with Damon Young, the show where it is official show policy to acknowledge that Angela Bassett got robbed. And so Creed 3 just had the highest opening weekend of any sport film ever. And much of its success can definitely be attributed to its stars, Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors, who've been on a multi-week press run where not only have they shown what appears to be a very genuine friendship, but a vulnerability and a tenderness that just isn't associated with what the country expects from young black men. So to talk about this, and also get a bit deeper on what black masculinity means, where we learned it, what it looks like, what we expect from it, and how it can both heal and harm. I speak to the homie Dante Stewart, ordained minister and author of Shout in the Fire, an American epistle. And then I'm joined by brilliant young author, Lorraine Abila, and we try to answer a question about the merits of astrology. All right, y'all, let's get it. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dante. Yo, what up, bro, bro? What's good, baby? <laughs> hey, no, man. How you been? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Um, in this present moment, bro, I'm I'm actually really good. Been having a good day emotionally. Uh, it's beautiful outside. The sun's starting to shine. I got my tea, got my favorite mug, got my candle. I mean, you look good. I mean, I can see you got the jacket with the alpaca collar going on right now, man. You, you're looking real good right now. I appreciate sharp. it. You looking good too, bro. I'm trying. When they say I was coming on stuck with Damon, I was like, bro, I gotta look good, bro. I gotta, I gotta pull out the new frames that I got. I gotta pull out my new shirt. So I went to Walmart, bought me a shirt. I gotta pull out my favorite jacket. I gotta rush home. Gotta make sure okay. my breast smell good. Well, I you, pre- know? you know, I appreciate, <laughs> you know what I mean? I appreciate that you went the extra mile for us. Oh, you know 100, what I mean? bro. 100. So did you watch the Oscars? I did. I watched maybe, because I usually go to bed around like 
945. So I made it past the supporting actors. I made it up past animation. I made it to, what's the last thing I remember? I think the last one that I remember actually making it might have been Navalny. I didn't make it all the way through. I watched probably about half of the show. I was watching it off and on with um, Last of Us. They had the season finale of that show. But I did happen to catch when, um, you know, in the beginning, where they had the best supporting actor, best supporting actress. And uh, particularly when Angela Bassett was up for her role in, you know, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. And she lost. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis ended up winning for her role in um, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And Angela Bassett's reaction, you know, you could tell that she was, you could tell that she was not happy. Now, how unhappy she might have been, that's for people to speculate. Only she knows that. But one thing that happened later that night, Michael B. Jordan, Jonathan Majors came out to present an award. And before they went into their spill, the first thing they did when they got on stage is they acknowledged Angela Bassett. They said, Auntie. We see you. And I feel like we talk a lot. You know, there's these cultural conversations about toxic masculinity, right? And particularly with, with Black men, with Black males, and how, you know, we, we need more examples or we need to do better. And that's all true. That's all very, very, very true. And I think about just the relationship that has developed publicly between Jonathan Majors and Michael B. Jordan in the last month with the lead up for the promotion and the lead up of the release of Creed, where they are doing photo shoots together, they're doing interviews together. They appear to have like a very tender relationship with each other. And tenderness is not necessarily a thing that I think that we associate with black malehood. And I think that that moment, you know, where they acknowledge Angela Bassett's hurt, they acknowledge that that even if Hollywood wasn't seeing her, that they saw her, that we see her, was beautiful, right? Like, even at that moment, bro, like, there was something so, like, loving and affirming about it being the first thing they did. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, bro, this is a gigantic moment for both of them. Like, my movie, uh, kind of Oscar kind of knowledge is very minimal, but as it is with basketball, so it is with like our lives. There is something beautiful and sacred. Mm -hmm. And if they had, praise God. But if it was their first time ever being on a big stage like that, it's even more meaningful that they would take that moment and say like, yo, all right, we got to order a business to do. But there's like a black order of business, you know, we got to do. It's like church, right? It's like church. When we got to come up, okay, I'm the announcer at church. I'm the MC at church. Somebody's in the church that is important that came here today. So we're going to send, we got our thing, our order of business that we got to do. But all right, we got to acknowledge this person because they're an important person and they deserve to be acknowledged in front of everybody. No matter what has happened, no matter what has gone down, they deserve that acknowledgement and affirmation. And like that meant so much to me personally, because I know there are so many ways even beyond that moment where we see the camera pan on her face when Jamie Lee Curtis is announced to be the winner, that 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 even before that moment, there are so many ways Black people are robbed of affirmation, are robbed of acknowledgement, are just robbed of the celebration that our gift and our endurance deserves. It ain't like she ain't been in the game for a long time. You know, she has mm -hmm. been in the game 
for a long time, have body a multitude of roles, have in some sense, you know, has expanded the idea of what acting can become uh, in very serious ways for Black women and for young Black girls. And I'm so grateful for Michael B. Jordan and John DeMarius that they thought enough of her to say that like, yo, even if they don't celebrate us or love us, we can still love us and head not one another because that's a really black moment, bro. That was like mm-hmm. a nod. Like that was like, hey, hey, I see if, if we come into the same building and like you here and I'm here and we see one another, like uh-huh. I'm probably going to be like, hey, I'm probably going to give you that. Like, all right, what's up, my dog? Yeah. Like, hey, I see you, dog. We in this room for the white people, <laughs> but at least we here. And that's only one side of it, bro. That's one side of it. Yeah. But then another side of it is like, forget y'all as well. Mm-hmm. Because y'all don't see what we see. And we're going to make sure y'all see what we see, even if y'all don't acknowledge it. It was a subtle moment, too. Like, it was one of the moments where if you blinked, you could have missed it. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned, like, you're in some corporate setting or an unfamiliar setting. It could just be an airport. It could be a Starbucks or whatever. And you see another one of us and you make eye contact. You know, don't have to be an extended 12-step pound or nothing like that, but just a real subtle head nod, a real subtle acknowledgement that I see you. I see you and I'm going to wait for this confirmation that you see me because that confirmation is proof of being seen because that doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why I I think that just that moment and also, again, the relationship that seems to be developing between those two is just so beautiful is because I, I think that you have these two extremely muscular, handsome, young, you know, almost like this hyper hetero ideal in terms of, you know, how they're built, their status, you know, all of that. They're both famous actors, but they are also, you know, not necessarily making space, but just being themselves, right? And showing that, you know what, you could be this person, you could be built like this, you could look like this, whatever, but you could still have some quote unquote softness, in you. You could be tender. You could be soft. You could be an artist. You could be quirky. You could be all these things. And again, I I think that, okay, there is this idea that, you know, these images are not that popular, that we don't see them enough. And we do. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? They're not the first. They won't be the last. But I think that the more images like that, the more people we could point to who are doing stuff like that, the better. You know what I mean? Because, again, I I think that it's just a really very beautiful public thing to be able to see. Oh, yeah. Facts, bro. Actually, what's interesting, bro, is I actually just finished a piece on that image. But one of the things, man, I wanted to write about in that piece, and I, I love that you're talking about this image, because for me, I am of the belief that even when something is silent, it can still speak tremendously. Mm. So like every morning when I wake up and go into my office, I stare at an image of a black boy. You can't see it right now, but I'm going to try and describe it as best I can. It's a painting of a black boy. Backdrop is red. He's dark skinned. His eyes are closed. His head is tilted up. His hair looks like mine. And on the side of his face, his whole side of his face is covered in flowers, pink flowers, white flowers, blue flowers, orange flowers, brown flowers. It's like his whole face is covered and his whole from the neck, from the face all the way down, he's uncovered. 
So there's a sort of type of nakedness that he holds in this image, but it's sort of type of uh, solemnness that is in this image, but it's also a kind of joyful, like contemplation and resting. Mm -hmm. And every day, I know that there are so many ways when I wake up in the morning and sit down to work that I am not him. There are so many ways that I know that every time I sit down to read or to prepare or to whatever, that I am not this brother. But every time I sit down, I'm reminded of what I can become and what can be an inheritance for me. And I believe that, you know, silence can be divine and that that even watching an image or or a movie or listening to a song can do as much to change how we think or how we feel or how we work or how we relate to one another as even arguing about like how terrible we are or how violent we could become or how little we feel. Because a lot of times, even in this moment, when this image came out into the world, so much of it was about the argument. But like the most thing that I think is powerful about this thing that we do is the experience Bro, it's the contemplation, it's the thinking, it's the watching, it's the talking about it mm-hmm. that becomes the argument either of what we are not or what we can become. And so, like, I'm glad that in this moment where we have so many images of the ways black boys die and harm one another, harm themselves and harm other people because they are not black boy or straight or whatever, or masculine or muscular or successful or whatever moniker we use to like marginalize somebody else. That in a time where there are so many images and those image function with such power that we have such an image of like intimacy Mm -hmm. and vulnerability and freedom, I believe can alter, as Baldwin said, even for a little bit, the ways we have come to learn the unhealthy ways of being together, bro. And like for so long, bro, I used to think that our self-image and our self-talk about black boys and black men was similar to like looking at a cracked mirror, right? So what is seen is seen, but it's distorted. Mm -hmm. And every piece of glass is like holding a different iteration of what's being looked at in the mirror uh, or, or whatnot. But like the older I get, bro, it's not a broken mirror where our image is distorted. Bro, it's a broken heart, dog. It's a broken heart. Our self-image and self-talk is about our heart being broken and us aiding the breaking in a myriad of ways. And I personally think that like, if that image has been had for so many decades or centuries or whatever, or millennia in some regard, then there also is the possibility that a new image can be had as well. And I think that they're at least allowing for the possibility of it, even if they're not like arguing about it. Because a lot of people asking Jonathan Majors about it. And if we're paying attention to his interviews, he's like, I'm just doing my thing. Y'all can argue about it. I'm just going to do my thing and be who I am and continue to love my dog like he's my dog. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad, you know, you brought up the point of how these things were learned, right? We learn what is masculine or what's considered unmasculine. We learn how to be a man and and a lot of who we are today is modeled after these lessons, right? This curriculum that is an ongoing living and breathing sort of thing. And, you know, I'm curious, I guess, for your own experience with that, like not necessarily how did you learn how to be a man, but what lessons, like who were your teachers or what lessons did you learn? And these don't necessarily have to be good lessons. Oh yeah. Positive lessons, but things that you like internalize. 
and, you know, either had to lean into or learns to subvert. But where'd you get it from? Yeah, bro. Ooh, man, I was actually I, I love this question because I was actually talking to Jason Reynolds the other day about this, where we was talking in the context of parenting. And he was talking mm-hmm. about his boy and how like his one of his dogs, you know, he didn't really grow up in a familiar structure that was like loving and affirming. Mm-hmm. And he was saying like for so many. So say like, for example, so many immigrants, they're like first generation. Mm-hmm the first generation to experience this new thing, to, to, to go after whatever ideal of the American dream that we have in our mind, the first person to go to this particular university or whatever, whatever, whatever. And this boy was like, yo, I'm a first generation lover. Like I'm a first gen dude who's trying to instill a loving, compassionate, tender type of reality for me and my children. And as we sit there and talk, like it made me kind of go back into my own life because I too am a first generation lover. I come from a family, you know, I ain't going to try and say nothing that's going to get me in trouble because I don't know if my pops or my brother <laughs> going to like listen to this thing, but I, I'm going to try and be honest as possible. I'm not throwing them under the bus, you know? So my pops and and, and, and my older brothers, you know, my, my daddy come from a generation of black men uh, that, that took a lot of punches uh, on the chin um, and, and those punches hurt more than their chin. And they never really talked about how much those punches hurt. And they, in some sense, punched themselves and punched one another's without talking about how violent those punching actually was. So my dad is a man who never really like showed deep emotion, mm-hmm. maybe in a way to like protect himself or, or things like that. Or even like, you know, my dad and, and my country home in Swanson, South Carolina, uh, my dad had this like shed that he built. So like before I ever knew what a man cave was, like my daddy had the shed with like the computers, like like all like everything, bro. Computers, uh-huh. games, books. Like it was just like a whole thing that you this old country shed that you walk into. But, like my pops would come home from work, and before he ever come in the house, my dad would go into the shed and things like that. And he would spend you know hours on end. What he was doing. It probably was for him, bro. It probably was to get a breather. It probably was to like, you know, just take care of himself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, that stuff still affected me and us. And mm-hmm. so like I would describe my ways of showing affection or being a man as trying to figure it out on my own while being in the context of men who are present but absent, mm-hmm. men who are around but who are avoidant men who are talking or, or whatnot, but who are also traumatized and things like that. And so my older brothers, they grew up in a generation of black men that kind of got the spillage, the immediately like spillage, the fallout mm. of the atomic bomb of unhealed black men's hearts spattering out onto their families and onto their friendships. So that turned my oldest brother into like, <laughs> so my brother was a hard nigga. And so like, <laughs> that's, that's kind of the way I grew up was like, I'm approximating to standards where on the one hand, you know, I'm lonely, but on the other hand, like I'm hurt because mm-hmm. like, like whatever happened to my brother, a lot of times that spilled out over into me. Then, you know, I play football, <laughs> you know? And so then I'm playing at the highest level of college football. And like, it's just a like environment where you breathe the oxygen of like 
black nigga machismo. Like, straight up, like, <laughs> it is what it is, though. No, I feel but you. That was like the environment, the context that, like, that I kind of came to understand myself as a black man. It was like I came up in a context where, on the one hand, I was lonely. Then, on mm-hmm. the other hand, I was hurt. And then, in the context of like sports, I'm always performing a sort of type of masculinity that I could never approximate to. But then that brings me like rewards and benefits that actually feel good to Mm -hmm. me and to other people, but then also destroy parts of us that we don't really realize. And for me, learning how to become a man was not necessarily like learning how to reimagine masculinity as much as as it was like normal, bro, because I it was just it wasn't like an aha moment, bro. It was like okay, I'm a broken dude. I'm really like messing up as an individual, you know, whether it was you know as a as a spouse or as a father. And it was just like, bro, I'm a sensitive dude, so mm-hmm. like I, I have a propensity to want to be better, and like I take I feel I'm an empath too. So if somebody don't like me, I kind of feel that energy. Or if somebody is not like, like, like if they don't vibe with a part of me, I kind of feel that energy. And if it's the people that's closest to me, like, and they feel like I'm like not doing well, then like the demand of love for me is to become better. And so like for me, a lot of my ideas of masculinity came from my own inward journey to try and give the young boy or the athlete or the husband, father, things that were stolen from him that he caused mm-hmm. or that other caused in him and just trying to kind of continue to learn how to do it again and again and again. Yeah. So a phrase that you use, first generation lover, I never heard that before. I guess Jason, Jason used that. One of y'all. Yeah. It yeah. Came Shout up out to in Jason a conversation. It came up in the conversation y'all were having. I've never heard anybody say it that way before. And that is perfectly succinct. It makes perfect sense you know, to describe a lot of us, you know, and the thing is like, you know, just for my own education, that doesn't describe me because Mm. my relationship with my dad was always tender, right? Was always loving. I I never doubted whether or not my dad cared about me, loved me. He told me he would love me. He also was like my first coach, my drill instructor, my dietitian, my jitney my nigga, like all these things, like my wow. fucking artistic director. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, your daddy was that dude, bro. I ain't yeah, gonna lie. Your dad was that. fire, dog. He did all that. But, you know, we also came up in a, in a circumstance where, you know, we were always financially insecure. Always. You know what I mean? And my dad had, you know, some employment issues that, that pretty much my entire life, right? And so... Like my idea of like, okay, this is how to be a man. Like I never, the the tenderness part and the loving part was never a thing that I, that I felt like I had to relearn somewhere else. But it was like, you know what? Yeah, that's, that goes without saying. I got that. But for me, I need to learn how to provide, Mm. right? I need to, and, and I associated manhood, masculinity with the ability, with, with power, and with status, because power and status gives you a flexibility. It gives you a freedom to be able to provide, to be able to, you know what I mean, have like some sort of abundance, to be able to have a motherfucking pantry. Like pantry was like the thing for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that yeah, was, word, yeah, word, pantry. Word. I, a pa- you, a, I got a, a pantry, pantry now. I ain't never had a pantry. So I got yeah, a pantry, now. you know, that represented excess. 
You know what I mean? So when I think of manhood, when I think of black masculinity, that's what comes to mind. And also, you know, I also hooped in college, played basketball and I played basketball because I loved it. I still love it. But I know a part of my love for it was connected in the external validations that being good at basketball provided me. You know what I mean? It gave you a status among men. It gave you a status, you know, among young women. You know, it gave you a status among white people. You know, I live in Pittsburgh, predominantly white city. And in certain social circumstances, I know that being a ball player, being known as a ball player, made navigation a bit smoother than, mm-hmm. than if I were just a regular nigga. You know, more a non-ball playing nigga. Facts. You facts. know, and and that's that's a, just a regular reality. nigga. We we, do, yeah, we got yeah, you. Yeah, we track you know. it, bro. Yeah. yeah. And 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 so you know, much of what is happening with me now is trying to because I feel like I have internalized that idea of okay, being a man means you make money, means you provide, means you're able to do all these things for your family. But the part about being a present father, a present husband, a present friend, you know, because that just bleeds into my relationships with my friends too. That is somewhere where I'm lacking, mm. you know. And and again, I, I the all these messy ideas of like my masculinity, what it means to be a man. And I'm 44 years old, and I'm still learning you know, I guess, or discovering what needs to be subverted, what needs to be leaned into, what needs to be embraced. And it's it's a trip, man, because, you know, I, I, I think that when I was young and younger and I would see people who are the age I am now, I would just assume that they had it all together, hmm. that they had, you know, stopped learning, that they were settled. And some, you know, some, you know there, there's not a correlation between having it all together and niggas to stop learning. Because some people, you know, have stopped learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Facts. Facts. Or stopped growing, but they don't necessarily have Facts. it all together. Facts. Um, and I just felt like, you know what, people, you know, once you're like in your 40s, and oh yeah, that means that you got it all figured out. You got it all settled. You're grown for real. And I am not there. And, you know, and I could be swayed. I could be moved. I see an image of, you know, Jonathan Majors and Michael B. Jordan hugged up on each other. You know what I mean? Because I think of, you know, when I was that age, when I was 30, what I've been, you know, if I was, you know, fortunate enough, privileged enough to have a photo shoot like that with my boys, would I have done something like that? Or, or would I have adopted, like, you know, the peace sign, middle mm-hmm. finger, the ice grill? You know what I mean? And I know the answer. <laughs> I know the answer to that question. What I've been free enough to do that. Um, nice. And so, yeah, man, I, I just, it's it's just like this ongoing education. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like I'm just getting just lessons upon lessons. You know, I see my mm-hmm. man, John Morant, the young boy that you just wrote about, for, mm-hmm. you know, the, the great piece you wrote for MSN on Ja Moran and how, you know, he's going through some shit right now, much of it self-induced. Mm-hmm. And for people unfamiliar, Ja Morant um, is a star point guard for the Memphis Grizzlies, one of the young marquee players in the NBA. And he um, recently was flashing his piece while he was on IG Live in a Denver strip club. And this was one in a litany of instances recently where he has been carrying a weapon or been accused of carrying a weapon or accused of threatening somebody with a weapon. And then 
he was suspended by the Grizzlies uh, for a couple games. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, yeah, you have some people who got their pitchforks out and want to, you know, they should cut him. They should, he should be arrested and all of that. And it's like, yo, this young boy just needs, I'm not going to say guidance because that's patronizing, mm-hmm. right? That feels condescending. Mm-hmm. But he needs to know, he needs to learn. He needs some where to be educated that the things that are fulfilling him, mm-hmm. that things that seem to be fulfilling him, the things that seem to be validating him, you know, publicly at least, are just not healthy mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I wonder where someone who is in that position at that young age with all those eyes on them gets that education from. Mm. Man, that's a hard one because, like, first of all, let me, I mean, you said so much that, like, (laughs) that I want to, like, stop and just be like, yes, bro. Yes, bro. Yes, bro. And the main thing that I want to yes, bro, you too, is that, like, man, I'm proud of you, bro. Like, on some real, on some real, on some real, real, bro. Like, I mean, I don't know you like that, you know, but, you know, I'm proud of you because to remain open and to be willing to grow and to be willing to learn and to be willing to evolve and to be willing to change like is a beautiful beautiful thing i'm a christian right you everybody know this but not not everybody i'm i'm reverend dante stewart right so as 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 a as a christian i Jesus is my dude, you know, we preach him every week from the pulpit, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody got to get to Jesus. And I was reading the gospels not too long ago. And it's a story that really, really blessed me, bro. It's saying how when Jesus was a young kid, the Bible says that he grew in wisdom and stature mm-hmm. in the eyes of God and among other people. And what's so interesting about that is that for Christian people, you know, we say that Jesus is divine and sacred. And so every iteration of his story is divine and sacred. But when it comes to Jesus growing up and becoming better with wisdom, when it comes to him growing up and having to fail and have to grow and having to understand, because the only way you grow up in wisdom, bro, is like you got to go through some stuff. Like you got to catch some L's in life. Like Mm -hmm. in order for you to grow up, you just got to do it. And how come we can say that like that journey is sacred, but when other people have to go through the journey of growing in wisdom and stature among God and among people, that that's somehow suspect. Like that's sacred as well for people to be willing to grow and to change and ask questions of themselves. So number one, bro, I'm extremely proud of you for being at your age and like, even if it's just becoming a Huh? Yo, hey, bro, I'm only 31, bro. So at my advanced age, <laughs> hey, bro, not now. You at that good age, bro. You at that sweet spot age, dog. Still, this old nigga still learning. <laughs> Props to this old nigga, bro. Nah, and you got a shot, dog. Nah, nah, you got a shot <laughs> on like basketball, bro. Like you still got it. Like you still, <laughs> hey, 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 don't mess around now. Hey, you 44, but dog, your joint's still wet. I, nah, I, still, nigga, I still get, I still get out there. You know, I hey, dog, still, you still know, got it. You still got it, and yeah. that's the thing, dog. I think that's the beautiful part. As it is with basketball, so it is with like our lives. There is something beautiful and sacred about taking the shot again. There's something mm-hmm. beautiful and sacred about showing up to the court again. 
Like mm-hmm. the thing that's not beautiful and not sacred is when because of ourselves or because of other people, we believe that we don't even belong on the court or we believe that we can't even take the shot or we don't trust that. OK, if I made the shot in the past in one area, for example, if I grew in a relationship and learned from that relationship or if like I was like a butthole to my dog like me, like I, I walked away from football because I was immature. And I got into a, one of my teammates, which led me to Western Carolina, which ultimately led me to quitting football altogether. If I can embrace and accept that and name it for what it is and grow from it and say, I didn't like that, but at least learn from it. Like that's sacred and beautiful. So number one, I'm proud of you. That's sacred. You're my dog. I probably can't beat you in basketball because I'm terrible at basketball, but I'm probably faster than you. So we good. Um, <laughs> so like, that's the thing about John Morant, bro. We got to be able to allow people to grow. And like on on another hand, on some real dog, even though I may not be comfortable with it and all the way with it, like we also got to allow someone to be who they are without saying that they owe us something in their like politics or in their respectability or in their morals and ethics. But John Morant got to realize like, hey, bro, the context is different. When you make it out, of the places that we make it out, bro, whether we like it or not, we have a responsibility to treat who we are and what we have as if it's actually a gift. Do what you do, dog. Do your thing, bro. But at the end of the day, you also have to realize that like whatever you do, the stakes are much higher. Like my pastor, my pastor tells me this all the time, bro. You have to protect yourself. Because you have an anointing on your life. And I know people don't like to talk about that or or, or whatever, because, you know, that just seems too spiritual. But I believe that, like, I believe in the ideal of calling and that the idea of calling means that, like, I have to treat my journey as if it's important and that it's okay if I can't do or say the things other people say or do. Because guess what? I do it when it comes to my craft. As a writer, bro, I cannot not practice, dog. Like, I cannot not read. I cannot not, like, work at this because at the end of the day, bro, like, this is my thing. I got to work at it. And, like, some other people may be able to do that. But, like, at the end of the day, bro, like, the calling is the calling. The anointing is the anointing. And I want to protect it because so few of us get an opportunity, bro. Your margin to be great at, at a thing is so little. And your ability to lose it is so great. And so in the between those things, in our margin and our ability to lose it, then we should at least like think critically about it so that we don't not destroy by it, if that makes sense. No, no, it, it makes perfect sense. One thing, though, that I do have some real ambivalence about, right, because I agree with you that we all have our own journey, you know what I mean? And, 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 and people need grace when we fuck up, when we misstep, when we get off of our path um, or whatever. But I'm the relationship between grace and accountability is one that I'm also, that's also messy sometimes too, because it's like, we want to give niggas grace, right? But we also like, and this is a thing that we also need to hold each other accountable. And so how does grace and accountability work 
you know, in your opinion with this, you know, idea of our journey, because, you know, from an intuitive standpoint, they seem contradictory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, bro, man, when I think about grace and accountability, I immediately go to my wife, dog, because I mean, I've been married going on 10 years now and we've been partnered for longer than that. And, you know, I know it's in the context of like romantic relationship, but I also think that there's something wise that I've learned from my wife over the years that I've thought about, especially in the context of like grace and accountability. And it's not as simple as this, but like if I can break it down as best I can, based on my experience from my wife and other people who have loved me, like grace means that like I refuse to leave you. Accountability means that while I'm here, I refuse to allow you to remain the same. Now, I will leave you. Do know that. Like, I will leave you if it comes to that point. But because I'm loyal to what you can become, I can allow myself to embrace every iteration of who you're becoming. You know, and so like, that means that like, yo, I just can't like treat it as if it don't matter and do whatever, you know? But that also means that for me and for other people, that means that like, yo, like, like, for example, with my dogs, like I'm friends with a lot of my dogs from back home that I'm from youngins on to this day. We've friends like and been friends for a while now. Like what does grace and accountability mean for me and them, especially the ones that's not like on my wave or whatnot? It means that like, OK, if I'm in the context of we in the barbershop getting our haircut and you start talking about like LGBTQ people sideways, that means I'm going to challenge you every single time, very publicly we going to bop, you know, we're going to talk, we're going we gonna to rumble and we're going to tumble. You know, if you start talking about women sideways, we're going to rumble and we're going to tumble. But at the end of the day, like in our rumbling and our tumbling, like you steal my dog because we got history together. And you, you, you my dog because like we got, we got love together. And of course, like I'm going to like, you know, like bop with you and things like that and be like, hey, bro, you, you, you out of pocket. But I'm going to love you because I know that there are so many ways that we are unloved. And like, if I have been loved that way in, in ways that, you know, allow me to change, then I, I can offer that to one another, another person. And like, I got asked a question during an event one time, boy, about black men and accountability, bro. And one of my dogs was talking and he was, the context was in that, was, was in the conversation about accountability and accountability for black men. When was the last time you held black men accountable? And he told the story of when men was talking and we was just in a hard place in life and we both like end up crying, you know, you know, like end up crying, like bawling uh, about like the situations that were happening in our family and our life. And we was just like being honest and vulnerable, you know, with one another. And then, you know, the person who was asking the question afterwards, like, oh, OK, I get it. But like, you know, but like, when did you really hold black men accountable? Like, that's one way to do it. And, and it hit me, bro, as he told that story, like, bro, accountability ain't just like beating people up. Like sometimes accountability is crying together. Sometimes accountability is like challenging somebody's thought. Sometimes accountability maybe bro letting you go your own way and you and you and you see where that take you and me do my own thing. So like for me, I don't think all that to say I don't think there's one way that grace and accountability hold together, but like for me especially with Ja and the way I wrote the piece is like I wanted to write it as if like hey, that's my dog. That's my teammate. How I'm going to talk about you in public and in private. And how would I want you to like walk away from this? On the one hand, bro, like I refuse to let you remain the same. But on the other hand, 
I refuse to stop believing that you have the possibility of changing and getting better from this moment. Yeah. And I, and, and I hear what you're saying. And I, I, you know, the way I look at it, you know, I think of grace as a longer rope and accountability. It's the recognition that that rope could be cut. I like that too. I like, I really like <laughs> you know that. I mean? That's a really good analogy, yeah. my dog. So uh, Dante Stewart, where can people who are trying to look for you, trying to look for your work, trying to look for your words, where can they find you? Man, they can find me online at Stuart Dante C uh, across my social medias. Um, or, or they can go to my website, DanteCStewart.com. I, I would tell people like, I'm a lazy dude when it comes to like doing things. So like just Google my name and you'll get my latest work because my website ain't got all that <laughs> updated uh, or whatnot. So I'm working on that. And some people kind of keeping me accountable in that area. Like, hey, bro, you, you wrote, hey, you wrote really short, bro. <laughs> hey, you, you need, hey, you wrote short. That thing getting short, my dog. So you need to update your work. But that's how people can get in touch with me, man. And I would actually love to hear from people. You know, I like to connect with people and, and, and see where it go from there. It's, all right. All right. Great to talk to you, man. Great to see you. Man, likewise, man. Shout out to every one of your listeners, um, to everybody who made this podcast possible. You know, none of this can happen without either of you. And from this guest to your ears, I want to say thank you and shout out to y'all. Up next, Damon Hates. The section of the show where I talk about shit that I hate. Because I hate a lot of shit. All right, so I live pretty close to a coffee shop, and I spend a lot of time in coffee shops. I'm a writer. That's just what writers do. It's a cliche thing, but whatever. And I've always hated coffee. And this isn't a rant about hating coffee because that's something I feel like that's also cliche. I feel like coffee tastes like the memory of a taste, right? It tastes like a palate cleanser, but not a palate cleanser. It tastes like something that wants you to forget how things taste. You drink coffee to forget, right? But again, this is not a rant about coffee. It's more, you know, okay, so I spend time in these coffee shops and I see people get their coffee orders, very intricate and involved orders. And I watch them take like the first sip of this intricate coffee. And I see them react with like this orgasmic delight, body shivers, a disassociative look on their face, eyes going blank. It is like they're taking a hit of something illicit, of something pleasurable, of something decadent. And I hate that I hate coffee because I want to experience what coffee drinkers seem to experience when they are inhaling this god-awful shit. And I see this, I have FOMO about it. I'm there drinking my tea and I like tea. You know what I mean? It's chill. But I've always desired to enjoy coffee just so I can experience what these coffee drinkers experience. I want to orgasm too. Not when you're supposed to get them, but when I drink something in a coffee shop, the public <laughs> orgasms, <laughs> the coffee drinkers <laughs> experience. I want that shit too. And I hate that I don't have Coming next, we got our advice segment and we'll be joined by brilliant author 
Lorraine Avila. So Morgan, the producer, I love that name for you. What do we got this week? This question comes from somebody wanting to know a little bit more about their birth chart, I guess. Dear Damon, I'm a non-believer in astrology, but an astronomy buff and have a side interest in the early history of astrology. I've read articles where the writers describe it as a sort of meditation practice or useful in a therapeutic setting, even if they don't believe in it. So I ask, would you ever consult an astrologer before making a serious life decision? Lorraine Avila is an author of Macriata and Other Stories, Celestial Summer, and the upcoming The Making of Yolanda La Bruja. Lorraine. (laughs) <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm doing even better now. I feel like my Venus is in Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> and my Saturn is rising. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm like Venus and Mercury. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I, I guess you could say I'm kind of into astrology. It's been a progressive thing. I mean, I have a natal chart tattooed on my left forearm. I don't really know what that means, but, you know, I guess that just makes me committed, um, but confused. Uh, but are you into astrology? I am very much into astrology for sure. Okay. Since, I mean, what was your introduction into that? Well, growing up, my cousin Diana was like older than a lot of us in my family, all of my cousins. And she basically like told us our chart, like our basic chart from very early. Mm -hmm. And like we always as a group of cousins moved with that in my family. So I think it just came from like really young. And then as I grew up, I just like went more into it. And then it blew up in the world. Like everyone cares about astrology now. And I'm like, great, we're on the same page. (laughs) Do you get chart readings and things of that nature? I do. Yeah. You do. Okay. Yeah, my experience has been a bit more, <laughs> there have been a bit more obstacles in a way. And the big obstacle that was in a way for, I guess, the first 35 years of my life was that I just thought it was some bullshit because it couldn't be proven. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know what, this isn't science. This is just coincidence and confirmation bias, mm-hmm. right? you saying that Capricorns act this way. and No, you're anticipating or no, a Capricorn here is that, you know what, I'm supposed to act this way because I'm a Cap. And so you end up acting that way, right? But in the last like 10 or so years, I think I've just gotten more in tune with the idea that I don't know shit about the universe and about how the universe works. And yeah, why wouldn't there be a connection between how the planets were aligned when we were born and the type of person that we are? Why wouldn't there be a connection between, you know, where the moon is and where the sun is in relationship with the earth and our moods for that day, our attitudes for that day, if we're, if all these things are connected on the same wavelength, mm-hmm. you know. For sure. I mean, I truly believe that it is science. I don't know. Again, like, I'm just like, mm-hmm. it's a literal picture of the day you were born of like where the stars were, where everything was. And like, if you continue to follow that route, I mean, it's giving astronomy. So like, why not? You know, so <laughs> I think like, just taking into consideration all of the, the placements and how the sky is right now, comparing it to like when you were born, like 
I don't know why that doesn't sound like science to some folks, but like I hear a lot of this pushback. I'm not an astrologer. Mm-hmm. I go to folks who that's their expertise, but like I do <laughs> deeply believe in it. Like I believe in a lot of other stuff. <laughs> so would you, and I guess this is kind of connected to the question. We'll get to the question. <laughs> we'll get back to the question eventually. Yeah. But you know how people say that you're, I guess, supposed to be equally yoked religious wise. You know, you can't have the person who's going to church every Sunday and their partner, someone who is like, fuck this, I'm an atheist or, or, or whatever, you know? And, I, and I'm wondering if the same is true with, with astrology. Like if you could have like a long-term partner, if it's possible to have a long-term partnership, you know, where you have one person who is getting chart readings and has their natal chart tattooed on their chest. And then you have the other person who's like, nah, this is some bullshit. I don't know what the fuck. Y'all just making this shit up. But everything else is cool. But you're just not aligned on this one thing. I mean, I personally, I guess I've been in relationships like that where like folks are super skeptical about astrology. And I'm just like, Mm -hmm. all right. And then I start like telling them stuff or I'll make them like download an app or something. And they're just like, yo, how does this shit know my whole life? And <laughs> having that like Channing Tatum moment when he got the pattern and like the pattern, like he thought like the app was literally in his therapist's office, like on while he was there. Cause he was just freaking out. Like mm-hmm. what is going on? So I think you can navigate that, but also like if long-term the skepticism is going to continue to be there, it's kind of like, You know, I actually don't think it's possible. Like, well, let me put it this way. I think it's possible (laughs) if one person is all in and the other person is skeptical, Mm -hmm. right? Because skepticism is healthy. Right. Yeah. About anything, about religion, about astrology, whatever. But I think that if a person's like, no, fuck this, this is bullshit. Oh, no. You're wasting your time with this, I don't know why you're into that. Yeah. Then that's the sort of thing where it, it probably speaks to a, maybe a, a more distinct disconnect that isn't just about astrology, but about just your general like worldview. Yeah, I have never been in that situation and I, I don't think it would work. Yeah. It's not that astrology is like my entire life, but I definitely like base a lot of my plans around like, okay, it's kind of just like, where are things going to be? Like, should I be moving in this way? But also like <laughs> for folks who menstruate, it's kind of the same thing. Like, am I going to be, I know this is a side stuff, but like, what am I ovulating? Like, or like, when am I PMSing? Or like, it's literally the same thing. Like we're going off of like the moon and like what the moon is doing for us as folks who menstruate. And so like, mm-hmm. for me, that's why it's so not far removed. And it's so easy to like take on to be honest. And so like, if someone had a problem with me following my like moon cycle, I would have a question like, are you serious right now? (laughs) (laughs) So getting back to the question, finally, (laughs) would you make a major life decision based off of your chart, a surgery, an invasive procedure, someone's going to go inside your body would you make that decision or schedule that decision based on what your chart is telling you to do? Well, I don't know what charts be saying about that, but I do know that <laughs> like I won't make big purchases or sign contracts during certain times. Like if, for example, like Mercury's in retrograde, you know, I know a lot of people oh, okay. think that's like hell. 
I don't necessarily always think it's hell, but like, you know, one of the advices that a lot of folks give is just like, don't make huge commitments during this time. And it's just like, sometimes it's six to eight weeks. Like you can wait six to eight weeks. You know, it's not that pressing. And even if I had the opportunity to like buy a house and Mercury was in retrograde and folks were like, wait, Mm -hmm. I would probably wait, even if that came at a risk, at the risk of like losing it, I guess. Okay. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not there yet. That's okay. I'm not there yet. Like if I have a surgery scheduled, then I'm just going to see when I'm available (laughs) on my calendar. What day is good for me? I don't know if I'll be consulting (laughs) with the star, even though maybe I should. Maybe I should consult with the star. I mean, again, I got it tattooed on me. So, you know, right now, maybe I'm the fake. Maybe I'm the one who's perpetrating. Maybe I'm the one who is fake if I have this shit, that this advertisement, but I'm not actually you know, applying it to the real life decision-making that can impact my life. I mean, hmm. not really. It can be both and, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I've done stuff during like those times where like in a perfect world, I wouldn't have wanted to make those choices in that time. But yeah, I think like, it's just like something to like, you know, have in the back of your brain, but like, it's not like black and white in terms of like, I have to do it this way, right? Okay. All right. So the next time, if God forbid, if I have to get another surgery, um, then, you know, I will consult you first. I'll come back to you. I'll hit you up. (laughs) Please do not, because I am not an astrologer. (laughs) Should I consult an astrologer before making this decision? So be be prepared. Well, hopefully that day never comes, because I've had surgery before and I don't want to have to do it again. Right. So Lorraine... Where can people find you who are looking for you, looking for your work? Yeah, you can go to my website, LorraineAvila.com or on Instagram, LorraineAvila underscore. That's where most of my work is at. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a lot of fun. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. Again, I just want to thank my amazing guest, Dante Stewart, Lorraine Avila, for coming through today. A tremendous conversations with both of them. Thank you all again for coming through. And remember, if you want to listen to Stuck with Damon Young, subscribe and listen for free only on Spotify. Also, if you have any questions about anything, reach out to me at AskDamon at Crooked.com. Thanks again, everyone. See y'all next week. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. Our executive producers are Kendra James and Sandy Gerard. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and mastering from Sarah Gibble, Alaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Gimlet and Spotify, our executive producers are Crystal Halls Dressler, Matt Schiltz, Lauren Silverman, and Neil Drumming. Gimlet's managing director is Nicole Beamshabor. Also, special thanks to Leslie Guam. Follow and subscribe to Stuck on Spotify. 
tap the follow button and hit the bell icon to be notified when a new episode drops.